Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm Riley Snyder, filling in for Nevada Independent Editor John Ralston, who is currently in Las Vegas and is not here in the Carson City studio. Uh, welcome to our third weekly podcast, a very special 420 edition. Um, each week we discuss matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming in the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news site that can be found at thenevadaindependent.com. Joined tonight by my uh, two co-workers and roommates, uh, Megan Mesterly and Michelle Rindels. Hey, guys. Hey. hey <laughs> uh, let's start with, happened, with what happened today, Michelle. We just got finished covering a speech from Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, and we spoke with her for a little bit afterwards, the video of which you can see on the Nevada Independent uh, website. How did the speech go? What did she talk about? Well, we heard a lot of the echoes of uh, Senator Cortez Masto's campaign. So there was a lot of, um, you know, uh, anger at Trump administration policies, um, a call for defending uh, women's right to choose, uh, you know, uh, touting renewable energy, and uh, a lot of, the, you know, uh, opposing ACA repeal, all sorts of stuff that, that we heard a lot of in the campaign. Mm-hmm. Um we also had a chance to chat with her along with some other reporters, got to ask her a few tough questions. And she gave, you know, kind of the same answers. Uh, she's always played it very close to the chest. Anyone who's watched her kind of throughout her political career, career knows that she's a very cautious politician. She's not going to, uh, you know, throw it out there. So we asked her, you know, who do you think should run for Senate against Dean Heller? And she wouldn't really give us a straight answer. Um, a lot of the questions we gave her kind of, maybe fill back into some of the same, like, I don't want to say talking points, but, you know, the same rhetoric that she used in the speech that she used on the campaign trail. I'm curious, to, like, did you think there was um, any real difference between, like, her and, like, the standard uh, Democratic, uh, I guess, speech that they've been giving? This was the, for those who don't know, each member of Congress for Nevada comes and talks to the legislature a joint session. They usually give, like, a 20 to 30 minute speech. And I thought hers was, like, really similar to other uh, Democrats who went and, and spoke. I think Catherine Cortez Masto, um, you know, there seems to be uh, having, she was an attorney general after Governor Sandoval was an attorney general. And I feel like those two are on the same page. They're, they're very complimentary of each other. She always praises Sandoval and his work for the state. Uh, that's one thing I, I notice in her speeches. Um, but otherwise, I, I did see a lot of um, the same things that we saw from, from the other Democrats mm-hmm. that came and spoke with us this week. Yeah, and we had uh, more people speaking with us this week as well. We also spoke with Congresswoman Dina Titus, who was here on Tuesday. Tuesday, yeah, I think Tuesday. Tuesday. <laughs> it's been a long week. The week all blurs together. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Megan, what did you think of uh, Congresswoman Titus? We all sat down and we did another video interview with sure. her. Yeah, I mean, I think her speech before the legislature, I mean, she's always just a very, you know, dynamic speaker. She has her quintessential accent, you know, so I think everyone sort of knows what what they're going to get going into that with Congresswoman Titus. She had um, a memorable line where she was talking about some of the marijuana legislation and said, puff, puff, pass that bill. And on 420 now, people have been using that as a hashtag, <laughs> sort of a catchy refrain. Um so her speech that we saw, you know, talk about some of the same themes, you know, fighting Yucca Mountain, um, you know, healthcare, immigration, you know, again, the same kind of things that we've been hearing Democrats talking about, particularly under a Trump administration. But you're right, we had some time to chat with her. 
um, after her address, and we had a chance to ask her about a possible run for U.S. Senate, which was a uh, which was fun. She gave us kind of a ambiguous answer. She said she was you know looking into it. If she's going to make a decision, it's going to be by early summer. Kind of kind of left the door open. Yeah, well, let's listen to that clip now. It is something to consider. I think Dean Heller can be beat. I think that uh, the demographics in the state favor uh, a Democratic candidate. Also, he's flip-flopped on so many different positions, everything from, you know, Planned Parenthood, immigration, you know, you name it. Uh, And so if it's not me, I'll work hard for somebody else who it is. It's hard for me to leave my district. It's a good Democratic district, but it's a fabulous district. Everybody knows where Las Vegas is. It's got the arts district, the university. It's where I've lived and uh, enjoyed life in Las Vegas the whole time I've been here. So... I'd hate to give that up, but, you know, sometimes opportunities just present themselves. Mm-hmm. Do you have any idea of, uh, like, some sort of timeline of when you'd want to make this decision? I think it'd have to be by the, sometime in the early summer. You have to do that. You have to start raising money, but, of course, once you're in, that whole dynamic changes from when you say, well, maybe I'm thinking about it. Okay, so, again, that was Congresswoman Dina Titus talking about potentially running for Senate, and we asked... Basically, every Democrat who came and talked with us, you know, who's going to run for Senate against Dean Heller. And, you know, as luck would have it, guess who talked to the legislature on Monday? Dean Heller. Uh, Megan, we covered that town hall event that he was at on Monday. We also, all three of us covered his speech to the legislature on Monday. What did you guys think of the town hall? Uh, I know, Michelle, you were kind of watching from afar. But, uh, Megan, what were your impressions of, you know, how that event with, uh, for those who don't know, he held a a town hall event in Reno with Congressman Mark Amaday. About 600 people showed up. um, And it got kind of crazy, right? It did, yeah. I mean, I think even just being outside the Reno Sparks Convention Center before, right, we saw so many Planned Parenthood t-shirts. There was a woman who was dressed up in a birth control costume with, like, all of the pill packs and everything. Um, You know, we saw lots of pink stickers. We saw some of the so-called, you know, pussy hats that were popularized by all the, you know, women's marches. Um, So I think sort of going in, we had a sense that it wasn't going to be the most friendly crowd towards Senator Heller. Um, I mean, so with that lens and the fact that, you know, pretty much every question was, you know, framed from a more liberal democratic perspective, um, you know, he he had some tough questions. Uh, I think sort of the hardest probably moment for him, which you'd probably agree during the event was he was asked about uh, federal funding for Planned Parenthood. And at one point he seemed to indicate, or he did indicate that um, he would be okay with federal funding for Planned Parenthood in some form. And then the following day, um, a spokeswoman sort of walked that walked that back and said, you know, no, he, you know, might be okay with, you know, Planned Parenthood, you know, engaging in some activities, but he's not okay with Planned Parenthood if they are going to be offering abortion. So I think that was sort of the the trickiest part of the speech for him in that he sort of, you know, changed positions from, from something he's always said and then sort of changed back afterwards. Yeah, and we found the, I think, the 2015 press release where he touted his opposition to Planned Parenthood and the funding. I got to say, Megan, you know, John leaves for one show and here you are throwing out terms like pussy hat. Just <laughs> inmates are running the asylum on this That's episode of called. Indie Matters. That's what they're called. Um, so, Michelle, we were also there covering uh, when Senator Heller came and talked to the legislature. Uh, what was that atmosphere like? How do you think uh, that, that speech went for him? Well, in contrast to the uh, the town hall, which was just 
look like a zoo from what I could tell on Twitter, following it from afar. Um, you know, you had a, had a rally outside with the Planned Parenthood folks and the, the Heller opponents, but for the most part, everybody was very respectful. I was really surprised there was a lot of decorum. Um, Speaker Frierson told everybody to, to, you know, stay in their seats and be calm and, and everyone pretty much behaved. Um, I think it was one of those situations where Heller is up in 2018 and everyone's hanging on his every word. Um, it's really significant and, and anything can be used against him. Um, but I think he, he did a, a solid speech that night. Um, no, no chaos in the, in the chambers. Yeah. What's interesting is like, I think all the Democrats kind of, cause they're in the minority, they can throw out like these bombs. They can be really partisan. Dean Heller was like, he really emphasized how much bipartisan legislation he worked on. He mentioned like Dianne Feinstein twice on Monday, which Republicans generally don't talk about how much they love working with Dianne Feinstein to begin with. He spent a lot of time um, talking about how the the Trump budget was anti-Nevada and talking about how he would stand up against, uh, obviously, Yucca, but Mm -hmm. um, things like repealing Snipelma, which is a way that, uh, you know, public lands are sold off to to benefit, um, you know, Las Vegas area. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, a lot of it was, was him kind of charting this centrist course, um, during the speech, uh, you know, in contrast to those Democrats who, who can, you know, just oppose what's going on with the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, like how there's a lot of issues like Yucca Mountain. And I think Mark, Mark Amadeo, the only other Republican in the delegation, he came out and spoke before the Sniploma cuts were really discussed or discovered. They're, they're united on a lot of the budget stuff, which is interesting. I, even though the delegation has changed so much, um, there's a lot of issues where they're kind of rallying around. And I think in a way they have to do that, right? Because Harry Reid's no longer there. Dean Heller is the senior member. And he's only been there for like a term and a half because he got that special election. So we're in a, we're in a new post-Reid world where you know we, we might not matter as much as we used to. Uh, well, Michelle, you were uh, not there on Monday for the town hall because you were somewhere else. Where were you Monday morning? What story were you working on? Well, late Friday, after we recorded our first podcast, um, some news broke that uh, Barbara Sagavsky, Secretary of State, had found some voter fraud. There weren't a whole lot of details about it. Um, they were coming out just that there were some non-citizens who voted in the 2016 general election. Uh, so, you know, the weekend passes and, uh, on Monday I was out, uh, waiting for Secretary of State Zagavsky and the governor to talk to them about what is this voter fraud that's happening? How big is it? Is it hundreds of people? Is it, is it one or two people, um, so anyways, I, I ended up finding the governor, and we talked a little bit about that. Um, the governor's defending um, the Department of Motor Vehicles and their process of accepting voter registration applications. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you know, uh, later in the week, Secretary Sig- State Sigavsky did finally reveal that there were, in fact, three instances that she's confirmed of non-citizens voting illegally in the 2016 election. Can we talk a little bit about like how strange this process was, right? Because like usually when news happens on Friday at 7.30, like it's stuff, you know, governments, public agencies don't want people to, to know about. This all came out um, in tweets from Sandy Cherub, who's a reporter with the Las Vegas Review Journal. We saw them. We started following up. I don't think we got the letter from the Secretary of State's office till I think like at 10.30 on um, right. Friday. And you asked the governor, like, where, where did you find this out? Where did you find it out? The governor uh, was told by his chief of staff that 
that the Secretary of State wanted to serve a letter to his office, and it was just shortly before we all found out about this ins- uh, yeah. this this incident. So I think some folks were caught off guard. We had clerks. Uh, the county registrar in Clark County didn't know about this beforehand. Um, so I think that kind of was a little off-putting for some of these folks not to, to have some forewarning before it, it came out in the media <laughs> and to really not understand at all the scope of this voter fraud that that Secretary of State Sigowski had found out. Mm -hmm. And when this news of the three uh, non-citizens voting came out, we all rushed to try and find, you know, a reaction, talk to uh, members of the legislature just to get their their take on this news. And Megan, you you got a statement from Assembly Speaker Jason Frierson, who had uh, some choice words, right, for uh, the Secretary of State. What, What did he say yeah, I think um, Speaker Frierson, you know, we, we got statements from both Speaker Frierson and uh, Senate Majority Leader Ford, and definitely Speaker Frierson had some of the, you know, strongest words to say. You know, he actually came out and said that, you know, he had a chance to ch- chance to meet with Secretary Sagafsky. He and Senator Ford sat down with her um, on Tuesday and requested evidence to back up um, some of what she had been saying. You know, they were asking some of the same questions we were asking, you know, you know how many, who, what was the scope? How did this happen? You know, there were just a lot of unanswered questions in the wake of that. Um, And he sort of expressed his displeasure, you know, that she was just continuing to, you know, say there was an ongoing investigation and she wasn't providing them with this evidence. And, you know, he said yesterday in the statement that she needs to provide the evidence to back up her claims to the legislature so we can work together in a bipartisan effort to modernize our election system this session. And he actually, at the end, was was pretty strong and said, you know, it's the Secretary of State's role to to verify the eligibility of these voters. And he said, if, in fact, the allegations she gets given the press are true, she needs to explain how her office failed its legal duties. And so that was a pretty you know, strong statement coming from Speaker Frierson. Um, Senator Ford gave, you know, a version of that didn't go quite as far as Speaker Frierson did. Um, but you can tell that they're a little sort of irked here that they, they didn't have information about it in advance that... You know, back when uh, we had heard President Trump, you know, talking about possible voter fraud and all of that, Secretary Sagaski had actually come out and said, no, there was there was no voter fraud. You know, the election was was safe and secure and conducted with integrity. And, you know, there was sort of a push from all these election officials across the country to say, no, you know, this election really was um, conducted properly. And so now, you know, to come out with something like this and, and not have the evidence to back it up. I think, like Michelle was saying, a lot of people were caught off guard and that sort of bothered them. And this is, of course, I mean, there's legislation that's, uh, you know, lawmakers are debating. Uh, so this could have policy implications. I think this could change the tenor of, of things and how willing people are to accept um, bills related to, to voter fraud. Sure. I mean, we saw a lot of this come up around the discussion around IP1, Initiative Petition 1, um, when it was going through the legislature. For those who don't know, through the initiative process, signatures can be collected and then a measure will come before the legislature. They have a chance to vote on it, approve it, have the governor sign it into law. If that doesn't happen, then it goes back to the voters on the next ballot. So that's what happened with Initiative Petition 1. What is IP1? Yeah, so it would allow for automatic voter registration. So basically you go to the DMV, um, you fill out this information as part of your, you know, driver's license application, and then that information gets pulled and automatically submitted for a voter registration application unless you affirmatively opt out. And so you have to do that in writing. Um, and so it, the, the goal is to ensure that you're sort of capturing everyone who is eligible to vote um, and giving them a chance to participate in the electoral process. Um, 
But a lot of the what's come up in the wake of um, everything that we've heard from Secretary Sagafsky is actually a lot of what Republicans were talking about during the discussions about IP1. Um, I remember, you know, before the vote on the floor, Senator Keefer was raising some of these questions. You know, are we having non-citizens possibly registering to vote? Are they casting ballots? These were a lot of the concerns that Republicans had been expressing all along, um, and now we're sort of seeing, you know, some evidence of that. It's still, you know, only three confirmed cases as far as uh, Secretary Sagafsky has said, but it sort of speaks to some of those you know, questions people had been raising. Mm-hmm. That's a question for you, Michelle. I don't want to give away your future stories, but you have been looking into kind of the, the process uh, of, you know, when you and I registered to vote, who is making sure, uh, you know, on the government's end that we're actually legal citizens? We're not just like making up names and filling out silly social security numbers or making up like a driver's license number, where does the, bu- who does the buck stop with? Well, uh, when you fill out a voter registration form, it goes to secretary of state's office. They cross check it with databases. They already have to make sure it's a legitimate information. It matches up with a record, maybe in the DMV or, or in some other, um, database. And they, they check it again, you know, to ensure there's not duplicates within the state. And they check it with other states to make sure there's not multiple registrations in other other states from the same person. But at the same time, I'm finding that it's a really imperfect system, especially when it comes to citizenship. Um, And it's been actually described as something of an honor system. When you go and fill out your voter registration form, you affirm, you check a box that says I'm a citizen. But, uh, you know, non-citizens can get social security numbers sometimes. Uh, Non-citizens can get driver's license numbers. So some of these things that we're using to vet people um, are imperfect at catching people that are not citizens. Um, There's also been an effort to, uh, you know, tap into this USCIS database, this Customs and Immigration Enforcement database, um, to verify people's citizenship, but it doesn't look like that's gonna gonna work for for a variety of reasons. Um, So there is some, you know, truth to the fact that that there are perhaps some holes um, in the system when it comes to verifying whether people are U.S. citizens. Mm-hmm. And there have been bills this session, right, to try and deal with this. I think Senator Michael Roberson, who's a Republican, had a bill that would force the DMV to cross-check their list of driver authorization cards, which are basically driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants, people who aren't citizens, cross-check that with voter rolls, and then, you know, put the, the ball in their court and make them prove they're a citizen to be able to register to vote. Have you detected any sense that Democrats might want to revisit this issue now that this has come up? Or what's, what's your take in talking with people? Well, I think Democrats don't want to get into that all at all. And I think that's why you, um, I mean, Michael Roberson's bill uh, died <laughs> an ignominious death. Um, but I, I don't think the Democrats want to, want to get it on that. They want to make voting as easy as possible and registration as easy as possible and um, through a variety of measures. They want pre-registration, they want same-day registration. Um, and I think that's why you're hearing these statements, these forceful statements from from Speaker Frierson and from Senate Majority Leader Ford that, you know, saying, you know, Secretary of State, this is on you. You need to prove uh, that something's wrong um, so we can fix it. But I don't think that is going to involve a whole lot of voter ID measures. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, Roberson's bill dying, which is a perfect transition into the the next thing we want to talk about. Uh, last week, uh, last Friday, was the first major deadline for bills to make it out of uh, their committee they were referred to. We have another major deadline 
coming up next Tuesday. We're recording this on a Thursday. That's the deadline for bills to make it out of their house of origin. So what we've been doing this week, you can go on the Nevada Independence website, and we have a spreadsheet of all the bills that have passed out. Um, Megan, you've been working a lot on this. Uh, what's happening with all these bills? Like they've passed, I think, 60 or 70 out of each house. You know, are they all coming through on party lines? Like, well, what's the general, what happens when a lot of these bills make it through the process? Yeah, I think this week we saw, I mean, we've seen a lot of, you know, actually bipartisan votes trying to get some of these easier, you know, non-controversial bills out of the way. So we've seen quite a few of those. But at the same time, we have seen some party line votes, you know, talking about paid sick leave or some of these more, you know, controversial measures. And that's one of the big questions is how many of these are going to be party line votes? What does that ultimately mean when they get to the governor's desk? If these measures have passed only with Democratic support and no Republicans have signed on. Um, so I think we'll start to see more of those as we get in tomorrow and we get into Monday and Tuesday and some of these you know, really controversial bills come up. We'll probably see more of those party line votes. But we're starting to see a few of them here and there and some you know, tension on the floor. Now, the paid sick leave one was interesting because as, we, as we've poked fun at the governor a little bit on this show before, he's very cautious about things he says about bills. That was one where he put out a statement and said, you know, I'm not going to sign anything that's going to hurt businesses when we're just getting out of the Great Recession. Um, Michelle, have you noticed that at all, that the governor is you know, taking a little bit more of a forceful stance on some of these Democratic priority bills like paid sick leave? Yeah, I think there's been a couple of bills. Um, I think some of the themes when you see governor speak out um, are, are things that are rolling back what he's done in 2015. You see him defend that. Um, I think the paid sick leave, I think the business community was uh, pretty unanimously against um, that proposal, even though it got heavily amended. Um, it was a bill that at one point would have affected an employer that had one employee. It was expanded to only affect businesses that have 50 or more employees, and there's all sorts of um, concessions in there, but Republicans still... Uh, stood up against that bill uh, that that wasn't going anywhere and uh, and he's got their back on on that apparently yeah it's very it's weird to see Democrats who are in control they control both houses of the legislature they have to kind of self-censor themselves they're not really putting out these like liberal red meat blue meat whatever the term is um, out there for votes they'll they'll introduce the bills that do this like they'll have the fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage then through the amendment process through the legislative sausage making, they kind of roll that back. And we were talking about this before, the self-censoring, the amendments. What, what are some of the other bills that, you know, were liberal pipe dreams, so to speak, that they've kind of had to pare back in, in the hope of getting it passed by a Republican governor? Well, I think you saw that um, with so many of these education bills. There were efforts to um, basically take all, um, you know, teacher evaluations out of, uh, or sorry, take any student test scores out of out of teacher evaluations and there was there was a measure that would have uh, reversed a move that came from 2015 it would have um, allowed students to be promoted to fourth grade even if they couldn't read at grade level in third grade that's a, a reversal of something that sandoval had put into place um last session so you, you see these bills get debated especially on the the day that you know hey it's teacher lobby day you know here's something um, a hearing they'll want to go to, so you kind of have a very extreme Democratic bill. Then it comes out of committee and it's completely altered, um, really been watered down, really been toned down to something that even Republicans can get on board with. Um, you also kind of saw that with, um, with the, there was a death penalty bill, a bill to abolish the death penalty. Um, got a really emotional hearing and, and it was a, you know, a priority for some Democrats, but it never uh, 
got a vote, never saw the light of day, couldn't get any Republicans on board and presumably not even some Democrats. Um, so Democrats are, are not going to try to force issues that are just clearly, clearly going to be, um, you know, in the face of Governor Sandoval. And um, so far, even even the paid sick leave, I think, would, maybe was the boldest move we've seen so far. Um, and even that had been significantly watered down to try to appease business groups. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what you think, because for people who don't know, you and I worked together with the Associated Press in the 2015 session. Our youthful colleague, Megan, was not here in Carson City during that She's time. still in college. Oh, you got to shame her publicly on the <laughs> podcast. <sad. laughs> uh, but we were here. We saw everything the governor did. He got 98% of what he wanted out of that session. Um, there's a lot of talk about like what the end game is going to be like in 2017. We don't know if we knew like we'd be making a lot more money. Um, but there's a lot of like, what are the Democrats going to get out of the session? What can they live with and what can the governor live with? Is there anything that was passed in 2015 that you see that you think is going to be included in those final negotiations, whether it's like a rollback on prevailing wage, which is again, like a a very high minimum wage for uh, public work construction projects. Is it rollbacks on construction defects, some of the educational things um, you mentioned, like, what do you think is up for grabs? What do you think is negotiable out of um, what passed in 2015? One of the things that um, I've seen that's a Sandoval initiative that might, um, that he's open to, to, you know, some concessions from where they were, was the teacher evaluations thing. Um, I think that's a system that's been worked on for a long time. There's a, a broad consensus of people that are inside the legislature and outside the legislature that, that see flaws with this, and, and they'd be willing to um, roll that back a bit. So that's, that's one of the things that I've seen. Um, yeah, I th- I th- it'll be interesting to see um, the areas that Sandoval decides to um, to let go, to let the Democrats take a little bit of you know credit for changing. So. Mm-hmm. Well, not all of the, the bills being debated this week are just stuff for a rehash of two years ago. There was another one that came up this week uh, that Megan looked into. It had to deal with the fiduciary rule. Um, it's a very complex financial thing that I don't 100% understand, and so I think I asked Megan to look into it. So so what's the deal with this bill? I believe it passed on either a strict party line or like maybe one or two votes going the other way. What's kind of the, the gist of this bill? This is something that um, Senate Majority Leader Aaron Ford made a big priority um, they sent out press releases. They sent out a lot of tweets about this. Why is it such a big deal? Sure. So essentially, the, the way that Nevada law stands right now is there's a definition of financial planners in state statute. Um, but actually, currently, dealer brokers and uh, other uh, financial advisors are actually exempt from this uh, definition. And so what this bill was doing is removing that exemption. Um, and while that seems like a very technical thing to just remove two positions out of this definition of financial planner, uh, the effect that it has is that financial planners have what's called a fiduciary duty to the people they advise. That means basically you have to give them good advice. It has to be in their best interest. Um, If you have a monetary interest, if you're going to get some sort of commission off of it, you have to disclose that. So it's basically just a higher standard that they have to adhere to when giving this kind of advice. Um, And so, I mean, that's a pretty big deal. You know, if you're, if you're having these sort of people in financial positions, you know, wanting to 
have them, um, you know, have their their client's best interest in mind. Um, but there was some concern that, you know, this could actually be limiting. There might be certain businesses, you know, who don't want to do business in the state, you know, might have, you know, Charles Schwab saying, you know, this is too onerous, it's too burdensome, you know, we can't, um, we can't, you know, do business here in Nevada. And so that was the concern from some of the Republicans is that if you enact this law, you might have some, you know, financial companies looking to leave the state. Um, so that was actually, there, there was some, you know, talking about that on the on the Senate floor before that vote finally passed. And, you know, we'll have to see how that bill continues to shake out, you know, on the on the other side. Did it like strike you as material? Because like there's always bills that are going to be party line. Like they're just they're partisan divides. There's not a lot of like overlap. Did this seem like something that falls in that category? It just seems like it's a very technical change, like you're removing two names out of a definition. Um, when you were looking into this and doing some of the research, did you know, is this like a party, a partisan issue? I think it's, I mean, like you say, it's kind of technical, but a lot of these bills, you know, when you look at it, they are very technical. It's taking this word out here, you know, changing may to shall, and then it has these, you know, um, pretty significant consequences. And so I think, I mean, when you think about, you know, policies that Republicans are typically supportive of, you know, less government intervention and regulation, you know, I think, I think some of that and protecting business interests, I think that's when you could start to see where it might, you know, shake out on party lines. But I mean, a lot with a lot of this legislation, things are very technical, they're very, you know, policy oriented, and they can feel very in the weeds. But you know, they, they are very, you know, partisan issues at the end of the day, and they, they do have a lot of real world consequences. Mm -hmm. and there hasn't been a lot of them so far, but there's going to be a lot of them on Monday and Tuesday. Um, so looking ahead to next week, uh, as I said earlier, Tuesday is another bill deadline. Can you guys give us an idea of how much our life is going to suck over the next like four days of how much we're going to have to be on the floor of both houses? Like well, what, what can people expect out of the next, uh, the next week? Well, today, Thursday, during uh, one of the Senate floor sessions, um, Senator Ford, you know, told everyone we're not going to have a floor session on Saturday. So I think a lot of people were happy about that, that they wouldn't have to be working through the weekend. You know, but he said we have 100 amendments right now that are, you know, going through LCB. They're drafting these amendments. Um, so expect, you know, long days on Monday, expect long days on Tuesday. So I think it's just going to be a lot at the end. And a lot of this really is just waiting on that amended language to come back. So, you know, people have something to look at when they're voting. To their credit, um, Democratic leadership did finish last deadline, you know, in a decent hour. We were not there uh, super late on a good Friday. Um, it it kind of wrapped up very neatly. So uh, let's hope that it's similar this time. Yeah. I think a lot of it's going to depend on, on drafting and, and some of these final details. But um, let's hope it's, it's a repeat of last deadline day. We can hope for that, but we, we talked about this a little bit, um, not on the podcast because we don't record all of our thoughts, but for committee deadlines, it's a little bit easier, right? Because they can pass conceptual amendments out and the committee can approve that. A conceptual amendment, for those who don't know, is just like, it can be three lines saying we wanted to do this. We don't have all the legalese written into the bill. For the first house deadline, um, they actually have to have all the legalese written. So there's going to be a lot of hurry up and wait on Monday and Tuesday. You and I know there's a lot of hurry up and wait during a lot of these deadlines. The nights are going to start getting longer. Bills are going to start getting weirder or changed in ways we didn't expect. So I'm sharing that hope with you, Michelle. I'm just, I guess in my heart, I'm a pessimist. Yeah, I think, um, you know, LCB, Legal Legislative Council Bureau, is having to sort through the mess that came out of that deadline day and people throwing on, like you're saying, these conceptual amendments at the last minute these very complex, you know, let's take out this part and let's add in this part. 
um, very confusing, hard to follow along what exactly they were doing to, you know, to amend a bill. So yeah. So now, now someone has to make sense of all of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's what's going on behind the scenes right now. Yeah. Any bills you're watching? For next week, Megan. Oh gosh, we're watching all of them. They're all important. They're Every all pieces of legislation. Every bill is like our child. We, yeah, we care about exactly. each of them equally. To see how they grow and how they change, <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, I, I think there's a lot of lot of different things. I mean, I've been watching a lot of the the healthcare policy. I mean, one of the things too coming out of deadline days, we saw some of these bills get exempted and get waivers. So there's some bills also that you know we're we're still kind of waiting to see what happens with them, and they you know won't be subject to that deadline. So. There's a lot of things in the works right now. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't only have bill deadlines next week. Uh, we also have a very important interim committee meeting on Wednesday. Michelle, what is that interim committee? So this is the interim, or sorry, it's not the interim committee. It's the, uh, I believe it's called the Governor's Committee on Energy Choice. Yeah, that's correct. I'm sorry. Um, led by Lieutenant Governor Hutchison. And this is a, the time when they're diving into uh the deregulation of Nevada's energy markets, a super complex topic. They really haven't breached it yet. Um, this all has to do with so question three, right? This is, this is question three, which the voters approved by like 72% in November. It's going to open up the electricity markets and monopolies uh, by electricity companies such as Envy Energy, um, which uh, is, is a very complex thing. I don't know if voters understand quite what they're doing. I don't think the legislators understand the implications of this fully. So um, you've got this team of power players from all the casino companies and the big tech companies and Tesla and every everybody um, on this big committee. And they're going to have to try to hash out what what is this brave new world of a deregulated energy market look like? Um, so we're going to see a lot of strong personalities and strong opinions. And we're going to see if these guys can come together and figure out a path forward for Nevada. Um, it should be should be interesting to see. And then there's a lot of bills um, that are related to energy, and they're really gonna gonna look different if we're in a an open energy market. So a lot of things are kind of just hanging out in the wings, um, waiting for some some clarity on um, on deregulation. So. We should do a story on that. It sounds like a good topic. That sounds like a really good story. <laughs> you guys should work on that. <laughs> and then uh, one final thing that's coming up next week that I have to ask your guys' personal opinion on is the Republican versus Democrats basketball game on Wednesday. Um, who do you guys got in this game? I don't know. I'm just excited. I've never seen one before. So this A basketball is my... game? No, I've seen basketball before. Okay. I grew up watching the Lakers. Give me some credit. No, I'm excited. I'm excited. I've heard so much about this basketball game, so I'm excited to see it. It's really fun. Um I think I was I was really surprised by Adam Laxalt last time. Um, Both in the election and in the basketball game. And in the basketball game, uh, he he came with his A game. Um, we've always got Scott Hammond, who's you know the Republican senator, who's a basketball coach, the MVP yeah. of this. Um, Mo Dennis, I'm excited to see uh, his sweatband and his goggles, his whole getup. So. Um, yeah, it's always a good time at Carson High. Yeah, I think it's the first time I've ever heard anyone say I'm excited to see a sweatband. So I'm sure Senator Dennis will <laughs> really appreciate that. Really cool outfit. You guys have to see it. All right, that's all the time we have for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast. We want to know what you think. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, send us an email at ideas at com. Please go check out our site if you haven't already. It's the thenevadaindependent.com. And go search for us on iTunes, rate us, subscribe, 
all that good stuff. Uh, thank you, Megan and Michelle, for being here tonight and for chatting about what's going on this week. Thanks to our producer, Joey Lovato, for doing all the behind-the-scenes magic. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Indie Matters. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.